Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear quite ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Jamie Kelter loves books. Jamie Kelter is a mom of three, a nurse, and perhaps the most avid reader I know. Previously, I interviewed Jamie and her husband, Sean, about marriage and kids. But today, it's a rare pleasure to discuss books with someone who reads this much. Hey, Jamie. Hi. Well, so far, this week, month, or year, you can pick the time frame. How many books do you think that you've read so far? Um, well, this past week, I finished a book called The Strong-Willed Child by Dr. James Dobson. Actually, it was a reread. I just wanted to hit the highlights again. I also finished another reread, which is also on just one of my favorite books ever called He Leadeth Me, and um, the author's last name is hard to pronounce, so I won't try. Um, So yeah, both of those got finished in the last two weeks. That's pretty fast. Um, I usually have three or four books going at once, though. Okay, what, what else do you have going right now? Well, I usually have a spiritual book of some kind. Usually it's recommended by a spiritual director. I may also be reading a book for my Catholic Moms book club. Um, Some kind of nonfiction that helps me in my personal life, usually parenting or um, right now some childbirth type topics. And then often but not always a fiction book just for fun. What's the fiction book right now? Um, right now, it's the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the prequel to the Hunger Games trilogy. Yeah. About 90% done with that one. I read that. Are you enjoying it so far? I am. I am so impressed with it. I It was not at all what I was expecting. It's so much um, deeper and just such a fascinating analysis of humanity i really didn't expect that i was just expecting a quick easy fun read like the other ones were um but yeah suzanne collins is really outdoing herself in my opinion oh for sure you know uh something that i i just find astonishing about her is that she can take these bloody grisly situations these wars or these perpetual wars and then she will put people of all ages in these scenarios and it's pretty realistic I think in in the emotional way that it's portrayed I mean these people are not happy uh things are very very grisly I mean they are just pretty hell-bent with what they're trying to get done um and then the consequences afterward are just devastating like the emotional hangover is just devastating oh sure yeah and and I really felt like that one was just so different than the other three. So she certainly was not repeating herself. Not at all. To take a character whose end you know, but whose beginnings... I mean, that's a classic prequel, is to tell the beginning of a story whose end we already know, but um, it's just so cool to see this character kind of unravel and become who we expect in a way that we never expected uh, it's it's incredibly creative for people who don't know it is the prequel to the hunger games by going back 65 years the hunger games takes place in the 74th and 75th hunger games this one goes back to the 10th hunger games and it's just a little bit after the war that tore pan am apart 
and both sides, the districts and the capital, are still recovering from it. And it's just very powerful. And I just actually want to ask you about one character in there, Lucy Gray Baird. Uh, what are your thoughts or impressions of her? Because I, I just thought she was, well, I'll, I'll let you go first. You know, I just, I, this is not a spoiler because I'm not finished with the book. I'm, I, I'm just not expecting big things from her. Um, and I, I guess I'm not, I'm trying not to get a, too attached. Okay. To what's going to happen to her because the real star of the show is Coriolanus and I don't know. I find his character read much more fleshed out and Lucy to be almost, almost predictable. I mean, she's just kind of like an interesting rebel, but I, yeah, honestly, Tim, I haven't given her much thought because the main character is just sucking up all my attention. So, okay. I hope good things for Lucy, but I, We'll see. Fair enough. I just loved her character because uh, I loved Katniss and the other books, but in certain respects, they are just polar opposites. I mean, Katniss oh, is sure. very determined, very serious, uh, grown up before her time, just all those type of things. And and Lucy Barrett in this book is just, she's a performer. She knows how to delight a crowd. She knows how to tease a crowd. Uh, she knows how to crack jokes. She knows how to sing and act and capture everyone's attention. I, I just thought, bravo for the author to go in completely the opposite direction with her female lead. That's true. She must have had much more fun with this than writing just this strong. Katniss is masculine at times. She just is such a get-it-done type of hero, doesn't waste any time, whereas this girl would be a lot more interesting and fun to write. You can see that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let me just back up to your secret origin story. Um, why do you love books so much? Gosh, um, I don't know what got me reading so much as a child, but it started really early on, and, um, you know, maybe... I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. I didn't, I wasn't like a athletic outdoorsy kid. I just loved to read. And granted, my family and I like movies too. So maybe I just loved stories, but books, I always preferred to movies. Um, my parents wasted a lot of money on like sporting event tickets because I'd always bring a book with me and I'd max out my library card going on a, a road trip vacation. And it was just a big part of my growing up. Um, I love a book that just stays with me and gets me, keeps me thinking about it all the time. Um, it's like super nerdy, but it's like the characters just roll around in my brain and, and hang out for a while, you know. A good movie or show will do that too, but I think a book even more because in a book you have to use your personality. I mean, your imagination. The book you have to use your imagination um, and you can invent the whole world visually in your mind and so it's natural that a, a book and its characters and its plot will just stick with you forever and really could keep going on forever if you wanted to play it out that way so books just have so much um potential and so they're just good friends i i think so too i think c.s lewis and other people just refer to books as good friends uh as old friends and somebody pointed out to me that books can do something that movies almost never do and that's provide uh, an inside or an intimate point of view for a character. Um, and what I mean by that is 
you could read a book that's in first person. I did this. I felt that. I was angry at this. I was happy at that. And in a movie, you almost never, ever have a narrator. You do in something like Shawshank Redemption, and then people just universally love this movie, Shawshank Redemption, because you really do get inside of the one character because he's narrating the whole movie all the way through and you see his ups, you see his downs. Uh, You just, you see every single, him going through every single possible emotion. Um, The author just puts him through the ringer and and the audience just goes with him and movies just almost never do that. Movies are great, but they show the surface. Um, Books can really get inside with either a first person or a third person limited omniscience and, I just think that's one of the great things about books that movies seldom do. I agree. That is a good point. So what kind of books do you love? I really like so many kinds of books. <laughs> Until a, two years ago, three years ago, I might have said, I only like fiction, but well, maybe it's longer than that. When I became a parent, I realized oh, there's so much I have to learn and there's so many wise people out there. So I realized books can really be an ally for giving me strategies and ideas on how to do something I don't feel good enough at, like parenting or marriage or the really important things. Um, And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm still never going to read a nonfiction that's not directly applicable to my life. But then I read the biography of Hamilton, the famous one where on Chernow that the um, musical is based off of, I, I read it only because I love the musical so much. And then I was like, wow, uh, an interesting biography can read like a novel. If a person has had an interesting life and, um, the author knows what he's doing. So I can't give you that many genres that I just hate other than like pure romance without anything else. Or, um, I don't know, technical books about fields that I have no interest in, but the, the rest is pretty fair game. Yeah, prose is addictive, uh, for sure. Um, okay, so you gave me a few really intriguing titles to discuss, and uh, they are Gone with the Wind, Little Women, Harry Potter, Songs of Fire and Ice, The Time Traveler's Wife, and He Leadeth Me. I personally want to start with Gone with the Wind, maybe because, now, now my understanding is publishers actually keep really terrible records of sales, and this book is well over 80 years old at this point, so I, I bet the records have gotten sloppy over time. But but I have read that this book has sold something like 25 to 30 million copies. But but it could be a lot more than that. Uh, some people basically think that it comes in second only to the Bible in terms of copies sold. So if that's true, or if it's not, why do you like Gone with the Wind? Well, I remember... My dad showed me a few movies as a kid that he just thought, as a human, I had to see. I'm sure he showed them to my brother, too. And Gone with the Wind was one of them. And I I loved the characters, and I didn't know that much about um, Civil War history, and so that was interesting to me. And I didn't even know it was a book when I watched the movie, and as soon as I found out, I had to have my hands on that book. And the book is 1,098 pages, at least the edition that I have, and probably read it five times because I mean a book that long you get something new out of it every time but um you know for me the best fiction has great believable interesting 
um, characters that you can relate to and um, Gone with the Wind certainly meets that criteria in my book. Well, I think there's such strong characters too, and they provoke such strong reactions in people, love or hate. Um, let's start with Scarlett O'Hara. Impressions? She is like the character I love to hate. She's not someone I want to be like in most ways, but she's fascinating to read because her motives are terrible and her means to get what she wants are terrible, but she is just like pure feeling, pure passion. And so she's just like never ending source of entertainment. She's so selfish, but you just, it's like a car wreck. You can't not watch her with fascination. (laughs) Do you think she could have survived or avoided going hungry again if she had, I don't know, just toned it down a bit? That's an interesting question. Not without changing who she was. I think for her to go more moderate or more soft would have been such impossible for her. So I think, no, I think she had to do what she had to do. Not saying it was right or moral, but yeah, she really had to be herself to make, to meet her crazy goals that she was setting. Are you attracted or repelled by her? Oh, I don't think she's someone I'd want to be friends with. So I, I, I guess I'd have to say repelled, but <laughs> in the lens of a novel, yeah, let's, uh, let's hang out. Let's be right there together because I want to watch this thing blow up. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, impressions of Rhett Butler. Oh, he was my hero growing up. I read this as a teenager and I just thought he was the best. I mean, you think he's a scoundrel and then you realize he's actually sort of a hero, but he has his flaws and that's my, it's my number one thing about characters. They have to have flaws or I don't like them. Or if they're all bad with no redeeming qualities, I don't like them either. But Rhett, um, at the end of the day, is a good man who for some reason loves Scarlet. And they could have been, maybe could have been happy together. We'll never really know. She may still have always been too selfish for him, but unfortunately we don't get to see it play out. <laughs> well, I, I want to come back to that. Why do you think Scarlett loves Ashley Wilkes? Oh, because she's an idiot. <laughs> he wants something that's so bad for her. Um, he's good, I guess, and everyone's attracted to goodness. Um, but she she would have ruined him. All she was to him was his weakness, and there it never would have been anything that they would have wanted in a loving relationship, but... She can't see that because she's so childish. Um, So it's disappointing to see Ashley do some of the things he does. But in the end, he's trying to be a good man, too. Do you think that she wants him because she can't have him? Is it just really that simple? Oh, probably. It's like she's such a child sometimes. Um, That's got to be the biggest part of it. I mean, supply and demand. I mean, she's also so used to bending absolutely everybody and everything to her will. And then here she can't get this guy. Yes, mostly she cannot. Um, She can only captivate him mentally. And I think that game is fun for her too. Of course she wants the whole package, but. (laughs) Do you think it's fun or do you think it's torture? 
Oh, it's torture. And it's torture on the reader, too. I just, like, almost want to skip those parts because it's painful. But it's it's real. It's a, it's a picture of humanity and what humanity does. So it's, you can't skip it. Right, right. Blob can be a real train wreck and a dumpster fire, I suppose. And the book captures that. Why do you think Scarlet and Rhett just can't have a happy, lasting romance? Oh, because they both love Scarlet so much. Um, and <laughs> that's never going to work. Uh, Scarlet loves how Rhett makes her feel. And I think she does love him, but she doesn't have a clue how to sacrifice her own wants and needs for somebody else. And he does. And he'll do it, but I don't think she can. Okay. So I also looked up how Gone with the Wind has done compared to other movies that are out there. And adjusted for inflation, if we can believe these statistics, it has still sold more tickets than any other movie. Uh, It beat Avatar and Titanic, Star Wars, Avengers Endgame, The Sound of Music, E.T., The Ten Commandments, Dr. Zhivago, and Star Wars, The Focus, or or, excuse me, The Force Awakens. That that just blows my mind, that this movie came out in 1939, uh, were 81 plus years after its release, and just nobody can beat it. And, And I'm just curious, why do you think that is? Why is this... This, maybe the second best-selling book of all time and the number one movie of all time. What is it about Gone with the Wind? Go ahead. I haven't given much thought to why the movie did so well. I think the audience for movies was so different back then than what it is now, and probably in a better way because people appreciated good stuff. I mean, the movie was just epically huge. It was on a scale that no one had ever seen before. I think it came out the same year as Wizard of Oz. That's right own new thing um you know they're both using technicolor and that was cool but everything about the movie was huge like just that i'm thinking of that shot where scarlet is going out to help the wounded soldiers on that like super hot day she comes out of the hospital and then the camera just keeps zooming out and out and out and out and you see hundreds then thousands of wounded men or dead dying or dead men and that's when I realized like this movie is enormous like a titanic of its time so I think people hadn't seen anything on that scale before and that is you know in the 30s that's something that without the internet and without all the things we're so used to now it's easy to think that your world is smaller than it is and so this is just an idea of what what was really out there. That's my best guess. Well, I, I think that's pretty good. I, in terms of guesses, uh, maybe better than anything I could come up with. I, I just feel like the movie just maybe has everything. Um, you know, like if we compare it to maybe some of these other movies, they, they've got similar things, but Gone with the Wind has got this epic plot and it's got this epic setting, the Civil War. I mean, that's pretty monumental. I think for people in 1939, that would be the equivalent maybe of a World War II movie for us today, just like the most epic setting possible. Then it's got these unforgettable characters. So, I mean, it's got the unforgettable setting, it's got the unforgettable characters, and then it's got this beautiful plot that just runs through the whole thing. Um, 
And then I think it's in the context of people seeing it during the Depression when people are down and out, and then they just get lavished on with this incredible spectacle. I, I'm just then it's got the boy plot, it's got the action, it's got the war, it's got the girl plot, it's got the love triangle thing going on, or whatever you want to classify it as. Um, I'm just thinking plot, character setting, theme, language. I, I'm just thinking she just was firing on every cylinder imaginable. Oh, sure. Slam dunk every category. Yeah. So is there anything else we should say about Gone with the Wind before we move on? Oh, just if you haven't read it, haven't seen it, take care of that. <laughs> Be better human. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Little Women. Um, people love Little Women. What attracted you to it? Oh, man. I remember as a kid, my mom telling me about the series and I read the book and I think I read it, gosh, I was by nine or ten when I read it, and then I didn't pick it up again until, um, I think last year it was, I, it, so, you know, 20 plus years had gone by, and the, the appreciation for it and the level of understanding was vastly different, and um, it's just about good people really, really good people trying to be good. Um, Christian faith is mentioned quite a lot, but it, I wouldn't call it a Christian book, um, but it drives each of the main characters, their faith. And um, I, in these people, like I've said, have flaws, but they're working so hard on them. They want to be better and they want to take care of each other. And it's just this beautiful family that I want to be a part of. And, you know, I was pregnant with my third when I was reading it again and didn't know yet if it was a boy or a girl. And I was thinking, oh, it's a girl. And I'm well on my way to having my own little March family. And that was exciting. Um, you know, I am having a boy, but nothing to say we can't still have four girls someday. So, um, you know, though society paints a family of girls as just like catty, nasty, shoe stealing, <laughs> shoe stealing, boyfriend stealing, back talking witches. But, um, you know, Little Women is about four girls who fight sometimes but love each other so much. And there's just so much we can learn from it. Give us uh, just kind of brief thoughts on the plot and each of the characters. Um, the plot is not like a gripping page turner. What kept me going was the characters and just wanting to know what happened to them as if they were my friends. The plot moved along plenty well, but it was not like an exciting story. It was just about people, but about good, real people. And um, each of the characters is so different, but they understand each other. And that's what's great and makes them such a good family. But Meg, the oldest, is she pursues the typical, I guess, route of wanting marriage, wanting kids, but she has no desire for wealth. She just wants a happy, um, loving marriage. But she has to get to that point after um, going through a phase like it, most girls where it was all about the dresses and the society and the fancy friends. And she gets past that and realizes that love and family is what she wants for her vocation and that's a beautiful thing and it's painted in a way that you don't see that much in stories these days where the married parent the married mother is not a 
attractive career anymore, especially if they stay at home, but it was painted very beautifully in the book. Joe um, is Meg's like complete opposite. And the if somebody redid Little Women these days, and I'll get to the new movie soon because I love the new movie, but if somebody like made a movie and twisted it in a bad way, Joe would be Gosh, Joe would maybe even be transgender. I'm just going to say that because she has moments in the book where she's like, oh, I wish I were a boy, but she, not to the point of transforming herself just because she has career aspirations and she doesn't see the point in marriage and other things like that, but she changes too. She falls in love and her marriage is different than Meg's was, um, but, or well, her relationship is different than Meg's was, but. Um, she cares deeply about her family and taking care of them as they all do, but especially Joe. Um, Beth, I feel like we don't get to know her as well, but she's the best as far as virtue. She's just, she's just all good. And you know what? I take back my thing on characters have to have flaws. Beth doesn't really have a flaw and it didn't bother me because she's one of the most endearing and lovable characters ever written. Um, and her flaw is her shyness and her humility but you know humility is typically painted as a flaw but it's it's really beautiful in the character of Beth and then Amy has like the biggest transformation I think in the book she starts out so delightfully young and immature and selfish and there's one part in particular where you get to see Amy's transformation where she is helping with this charity event and she's kind of slandered, but she bites her tongue. She holds her tongue. She decides to just serve and to not bring more attention on herself. And she's just trying to help other people. And it's just really awesome character transformation. Um, and that's like the best part of the book is seeing these women try so hard to be people of heroic virtue. What do you think the appeal is 150 years later or so after it came out because it spawned sequels people still read the sequels people still read little women it's been made into a movie how many times twice three times four times at least twice um i think because the family is so torn apart and people don't experience that in their own life they experience the unity of a family and certainly not a family with unity of thought and mission like the march family where everything about their family was service to each other and to the greater world out there and i think people are good deep down and they want that but they don't even know they want it and then they see this family just like killing it and they're like oh i want that i want to be a part of such a happy unit um so I think people want what they don't have. We're getting to be less and less virtuous as a culture and a world and goodness and beauty are so attractive. I, I also think that it's really hard for an author to pull off what she's pulled off. You know, I, I just think that if you're going to have these high caliber virtuous characters with really limited flaws, um, it's a little bit like Superman as a character. Mm -hmm. um, Kind of no flaws to Superman. Um, maybe about two weaknesses. You know, kryptonite and uh, family and friends. Like if you threaten his family and friends, then he's kind of in a jam. And so 
it's really hard for authors to pull that off and make that interesting, but apparently they can do it. And so maybe that's why it's so good because she just succeeded in, in making goodness very, very interesting, very attractive. So how does the book age compared to say you read it at when you're nine and then you read it 20 years later? Oh, it's, it was a completely different book reading it as a married mother of three to reading it as a kid. Um, I can see myself and all of the characters now, um, the struggles of marriage and family life are portrayed so well. Um, which is interesting because Louisa May Alcott never married, but, um, she did adopt her sister's children after her sister died. So, um, I think she wrote it as if she were Joe and, um, like Joe was based off of herself. So, um, but Joe in the book does end in the book in a serious relationship. So, Tim, I forgot your original question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just uh, how does the book change from when you're nine years old to when you're reading it 20 years later? Oh, just knowing more about people and how they tick and what they do um, aged it very well, I think. I love a book that grows up with you. I guess I'm thinking of Huck Finn when I say that, because if you read that when you're a kid, especially if you're a guy, that's an adventure book. And then if you read that when you are, say, 20 years old or 30 years old, it's a social commentary book. And it's a book about human nature, about people who are good and other people who are bad and other people who are weak. It's just very fascinating because when you read it as a kid, it's just all excitement, you know. And then when you're older, you're thinking, wow, this author has got some really sharp insights on people. This is really, really, really interesting. So it's a different book. It's just, it grows up with you. That's what I like about it. And is Little Women kind of like that? It grows up with you? Oh, I think so. Um, yeah, I haven't actually finished out the trilogy. I read Joe's Boys um, this year, but I haven't read Little Men. So um, it'll be interesting to see. But I, I have high hopes. You know, I don't think... I don't think Alcott is going to fail us in any way. So, but yes, I think the book um, ages perfectly because book, good books about people who are written well, they always do. Okay. Any, any last thoughts on Little Women before we move on? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we've got time for Harry Potter and then maybe save the rest for part two. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So Harry Potter, the Colossus. Um, do you view this as one separate, or excuse me, seven separate books, or is this in your mind one big book? Oh, I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I guess I've always considered them separately because, but it does make sense. It it really could go either way because sometimes I'll read reread one by itself, but then sometimes I'll get in a mode of wanting to reread the whole story. It is it is one. I'll say that it's one. <laughs> One gigantic, epic book. I can't even imagine being this author and writing, I don't know what that is, 5,000 pages, something like that, and just having that in your head for, I don't know what it was, 15 years, for her to put this whole thing out there. That's just crazy to me. Yeah. 
remember the time span, but that sounds about right. Yeah, I just, uh, I can't quite remember. I think the first one came out in 96 or 97, and the last one came out maybe in about 2010. But, but all that aside, what do you love about Harry Potter? Why should people read Harry Potter? Not that they need any more promotion. I think Harry Potter created a world that every single person wanted to just jump into and never leave. The world was incredible. It was so vivid. It was so appealing. Everything about it was just fantastical and wonderful. And most kids I knew were dying to receive their letter from Hogwarts. You know, I think most real fans had a tiny part of them that just wanted it to be real so badly. They're just waiting for their own letter, <laughs> even as they age past the age of 11, you know, I'll be that one person. I'll be the, I'll be the muggle born who, who enters at age 16 or 20 or whatever. I, I want to go to Hogwarts. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have a favorite character? Gosh, that's tough. Um, yes, it is. It's really tough. I I think some of the professors are my favorite. I was thinking through the kids. Ron might be my favorite of the kids, but the professors, I mean, Dumbledore is an absolutely fascinating guy, and McGonagall is fun. Lupin is great. Um I don't think I can pick a favorite. I really can't. It's not Harry. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. I don't dislike Harry Potter, but he's not the the, the be-all, end-all for me. Right. Well, I, I think, I don't know how to put this, but Harry's kind of the normal one. And in, in a certain yeah. respect, he represents the reader. You know, because the reader is probably an ordinary person for the most part. Sure. And so then you've got these extreme people like Lupin and so forth who are just on the far, far end of whatever spectrum they're on. And so they just really stand out in sharp relief. So I, I don't know. I think we're attracted to the extremes and, and she's got plenty of them. That's, that's just kind of my theory on that. I think that's a good theory. Harry kind of does have to be neutral or the series, the cast of characters might kind of overwhelm you. Um, He's just like a little bit of an anti-hero, which is not bad. I mean, he's not arrogant. He's not um, cruel. He's not He's not really sold on himself at all. So he's just honestly a little bit boring. But good. In the end, he's good. And you still believe in him and want to get behind him. And, but yeah, he can represent the reader. I do like that. I think so, because he gets dragged into a situation that really was not of his choosing. It's not like he voluntarily... Over and over. Yeah, it's it's not like he's a guy out there who just voluntarily joined the Navy SEALs so that he could go off and defend, you know, and protect people. Uh, it's just right. really more kind of like he got hijacked into this yeah, whole situation. He's, he's the boy who lived at one year old. He definitely didn't have a choice in the matter. It's totally true. Is there a character that you just hate? Oh, Rita Skeeter is so fun to hate. She must have been a blast to write. She's just awful, as is... Um, no, she's definitely the worst. Even the Malfoys have their redeeming moments, but Rita Skeeter is just the pits. Remind people, or for the four people who have not read Harry Potter, um, remind them who Rita Skeeter is. 
oh, she's the tabloid writer. So the wizarding world has has a gossip rag that she contributes to, and she has a, a charmed quill that, quote unquote, quotes people, but it doesn't at all. It um, takes her own voice and paraphrases their words and twists their words and makes them look good or bad, however she wants them to look. So these interviews with these poor people are always one-sided and horribly skewed. And um, she makes a lot of people hate Harry when he never did anything to anybody. So she's the worst. You know, people sure like to make fun of journalists. I was just thinking about that, that sometimes it gets called maybe the world's second oldest profession and not in a good way. Um, William Tecumseh Sherman, a 19th century American general, said, if I had my way, I'd kill every reporter in the world, but I still think we'd be getting reports from hell before breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. He was a pretty sharp-witted, sharp-tongued guy. I just think it's funny just how, how many people in many decades just have such a trouble with journalism. Um, Michael Creighton said that you can read an article about yourself and just be completely insulted and offended because there are so many facts and details that are wrong. But then a strange thing, then we'll turn over to page two, read an article about somebody else, and we'll assume every word of it is true. Even though on page one, there was an article about us that just distorted everything. So I, I guess I'm really glad that J.K. Rowling, you know, put that in her book. Um, oh, well, now it, she's kind of experiencing it. She's, uh, J.K. Rowling is part of the cancel culture because of, I mean, she's on the victim end of this cancel culture. I don't know if you've heard about this. Because yes. of her, her words about um, women being women and what feminism is and should not be. And so it's almost like she foreshadowed um, some things in our own life. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I think we could talk about Harry Potter for hours, but, but let's, uh, let's conclude with Harry Potter. Um, what else could we say about Harry Potter that you would like to say? Something I realized after the conclusion of the whole book, the seven parts is how religious it is. Um, and, which is so ironic because, you know, there are stories of evangelical Christians burning the book and, and banning it and, and forbidding their children to experience it. And on a purely superficial level, yes, we should teach our children that witchcraft and wizardry is not just fictional, but that it can be real and it can be a tool of the devil. And of course, our children should understand that, but... I want my children to read these books and understand a healthy fictional perspective as well and how to enjoy it. And, um, but it's just almost an ironic slap in the face to um, Christians who don't quite understand the levels there are to this book that I just thought there were a lot of, um, a lot of Christian allegory in the book. You know, the boy who lived, who sacrifices himself for the whole world, and he's the only one who can do that. I mean, that's not a new story. The Matrix is like that, too. Oh, for sure. Chosen one and all that. But um, when he, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it or seen it, I'll I'll just put that out there. When he 
sort of dies. He's like in heaven. And I just saw this, like, oh, I'm not explaining this very well, but it, to me it seemed like Dumbledore was God and Harry had a choice where he could move on to heaven or stay on earth. And um, there, Dumbledore even has a line. I, I wish I would have revisited this to get ready for this podcast. But um, he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's straight out of the new testament i mean i believe that's in romans that's saint paul um and so we can't disagree with that as christians there's so much hope and you know evil is vanquished and it's so exciting and um i just in dumbledore being dead but kind of guiding harry and harry doubting him at times it's just like every christian struggle with god listening to the voice of god learning how to interpret the will of God. I just, I just found so many like endearing um, allusions to our faith in this book that, that some Christians really hate. Um, so I'll be excited for the challenge of presenting it to my children and having them understand the real dangers of engaging the, you know, evil spirits in the world, but also the healthy appreciation for good fictional story. Absolutely. And, and people should just know, um, well, one of my majors was literature and that Christ figure used to be a very, very well-established motif in fiction for decades and decades and decades. People just couldn't get away from it. I mean, it's in Herman Melville, it's in Mark Twain, it's in all kinds of literature all over the place, story after story after story, especially up until World War II. Even a more recent uh, movie like Gran Torino uh, at the end, um, the main character that Clint Eastwood plays acts in a very sacrificial way to save a whole community. And uh, almost to make it a little too obvious, he even stretches out his arms in the shape of a crucifix when he dies. Um, and then his death saves other people. I mean, this, this is a very common motif in literature. It's it's too bad some people missed it. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I don't think they it meant any harm or did much harm. I mean, it was it would have taken a lot to rock the fan base of Harry Potter. Oh, but for sure. They just missed out on the fun, really. Yeah. Well, there's there's always hope. Uh, maybe people will read it in the future. Yeah. Well, I guess we will. Um, say that this is the end of part one and uh, we will do part two a little bit later. Okay. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Tim. This was fun. I look forward to next time. Good. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. The next episode will appear on a Tuesday.